I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's sponsored insight is Michael Carmen, the co-head of private investments at Wellington Management. Wellington's private investment platform has $8 billion in committed capital investing across technology, consumer, healthcare, and financial services. Michael helped launch the firm's first private equity fund in 2014, bringing Wellington's broad scope to late-stage venture-backed companies. He previously invested in diversified small and mid-cap public equities. Our conversation covers Michael's early career, path to Wellington, and pivot after a decade at Wellington from public markets to privates. We discuss his investment process across sourcing, diligence alongside Wellington's public equity analysts, value proposition for portfolio companies, portfolio construction, and exits. We close with opportunities and risks for those with capital to put to work. Before we get going, it's been a strange summer in the skies and on the fields. The weather by me was unseasonably cool, then a little too hot, and interspersed with some ridiculous rainy downpours along the way. On the diamond, neither my beloved Yankees nor the crosstown Stevie Cohen-owned Mets seem to be able to get much going, and yet Hank's beloved Atlanta Braves can do no wrong. If you told me going into this year that the Big 7 tech names would be up 100% in the first half, I would have told you not to make any bets on active management, especially against Warren Buffett. And if you also told me that tech would bounce back, I might have suggested watching the forgotten crypto ecosystem, which, last I checked, is still there. I really can't figure out any of this, but that's why I love talking to some of the smartest minds in the business who try. You know where this is going, so I'll get there. If you want to figure it out, I can't think of a better place to spend your time than listening to capital allocators or private equity deals. Or if you want to really understand how the sausage gets made, you might try investment management operations. Just saying. And as you enjoy your favorite summer pastime or just find yourself passing the time away in the hot summer sun, go ahead and share the love with whoever is getting a tan next to you. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Carmen. Michael, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. Why don't you take me all the way back to your beginning in the investment business? I always think of myself as kind of the accidental investor because I had no inkling of this business. I really was not involved with it growing up. The deepest I ever got was checking stock quotes from my dad in the New York Times. But I remember getting a call from a headhunter and he said, hey, I got this great opportunity for you. There's this job at Sanford Bernstein. It's on the sell side. You'll be working with this analyst and doing research. And I said, that's amazing but what's the sell side and who's Sanford Bernstein? (laughs) I had no clue about any of this. And so I took the interviews and I met a bunch of people there and it sounded really interesting. And then eventually I was super lucky and I got the job there as a research associate. 
And it was love at first sight. For me, someone who loved numbers and loved to think about the future, this was the perfect job. And I was working, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, but I just loved it. I was on the technology side and that was my initial introduction because I knew nothing about technology. I mean, when I went to college, I think literally one person had a PC and I was working with the PC analysts and the workstation analysts. And I was in the room when all these new inventions were taking place. And it was just a super exciting period in technology was the advent. They were talking like 1988 at this point in time. I just got so involved and so interested. And that was my entree into the business as sell-side research associate. Bernstein back in the day was known as a value shop. How did technology investing back then blend with the value philosophy of Bernstein? You're right. On the buy side, it was very much known as a shop that was really steeped on value investing. On the sell side, it was a little bit broader. So we had a little bit wider aperture to really look at this. It's a really good question because that is the introduction for me as being a growth investor. It was trial and error. One of the things I think I learned was that it's really, really hard to be a value investor in technology. And it was really hard for me, from my personality standpoint, to want to be a value investor because it wasn't really what I was all about. I love trying to find the new, new thing, really finding that great invention. And I remember being in the room when Compaq introduced the first real laptop. Back in the day, the laptop was this big suitcase you'd be able to carry around. And I don't even know if they called it a laptop. I think Compaq used to call them luggables. Rod Canyon was the CEO of Compaq at the time. And I was probably at the Plaza or someplace in New York City. And he introduced this product, holding it up with just his fingertips, which was a big deal at that time. I was so excited about this new product. And it was almost like I had an epiphany then that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be there and try to discover companies that were really introducing next generation products and being in the position to invest in those companies. And it was really a transformative moment for me in terms of what I wanted to do longer term. What was your eventual pivot from the sell side to the buy side? When I was on the sell side, what I realized was that what was happening was that my research was being sent into the Netherlands. Sanford Bernstein did really great research. We did these black books. I still have a copy of the black book that I was the co-author of that was, I believe, 415 pages on Julie Packard. We had a hold on the stock. And I remember one of our clients called us up and was yelling and screaming at us, like, why would you do a 400-page black book and put a hold on the stock? Well, that's what the conclusion was. And I realized that I wanted to be involved in the process and I wanted to be the center of what was going on and really be a part of the decision-making. I wanted to be an investor. I ended up going back to business school. And then that led to my first job on the buy side, which was as a technology analyst at Signer Investments. How did you eventually find your way to Wellington? I came out of business school in 1991 in the middle of a recession. So there were not a lot of jobs out there. My choices were between this job at Cigna as a tech analyst, and then I was to be a institutional salesperson at Smith Barney. But based on what I wanted to do, that was going to be the best job. And then I was fortunate that eight months after I got there, the old State Street Research, they were looking for a tech analyst and somebody to be an associate portfolio manager. And so within eight months, I was in Boston. And then I actually left Boston and I went to Montgomery Asset Management 
on the West Coast. Turned out my family didn't like being on the West Coast. We ended up going back to State Street Research where I then ran a small cap fund. And then about a year later, myself and another portfolio manager spun out. We started a hedge fund when hedge funds were still reasonably new. And I did that for a couple of years. Wellington was looking for some younger portfolio managers. I started talking to everybody there and I just loved the vibe in terms of how collaborative everybody was and how collegial everybody was. And so after the typical 25 Wellington interviews, I finally got an offer to go there and I was going to run an institutional account and also part of one of the hedge funds. I was running maybe $120 million. I really felt strongly this was going to be the right place for me. And so in 1999, in the middle of the tech bubble, I joined Wellington Management. So what was your path at Wellington from large stock picking to getting involved in privates? For the majority of my career at Wellington, I was a diversified portfolio manager on the public side over the course of that first decade. And during that, I was starting to notice that companies were starting to stay private longer. And I think a lot of this came out of Sarbanes-Oxley and some of the issues from the last recession. Companies were starting to look for alternatives for capital because it was a little more onerous to go public. The regulatory framework was a little higher. The cost of going public was a little higher. I started probably as early as 2006 in making some investments out of my public funds into some private companies because many of those funds had the latitude to have illiquid securities. After the great financial crisis, companies like Uber and Airbnb and Peloton and many, many others were seeking capital from a variety of opportunity sets. And that included the mutual fund companies like ourselves and the Fidelities and the T-Rows. But I started to realize that that model of taking illiquid securities and putting them in daily liquidity vehicles maybe was not the best model for the longer term because it's just uncertain. Obviously, right now we're seeing this where the IPO market has shut down and now you're ending up holding these companies for three, four, five years rather than 18 to 36 months. And so I went back to our alternatives group and I said, hey, would we consider doing a dedicated portfolio so that we could align LPs who are looking to invest longer term with these types of opportunities in the late stage space within a dedicated model. And so after betting that for 18 months, we launched and the category has just grown tremendously from back in 2012. And now I don't think there's a company that is in the capital markets on the private side that doesn't eventually do a late stage round. When you first mapped that out in 2012, what was the core of your philosophy of why this is a good strategy? So for us specifically, I thought it would be a great strategy because when I think about the elevator pitch of what does Wellington even bring to the table around this asset class is that we're able to bring public market expertise to the private market with public market experts and private market experts. This was very leverageable and a tremendous edge for what Wellington has been doing historically, principally because these are exactly the companies we were looking at on the public side. These were just companies that were staying private longer. I think the most interesting example of this is you take Amazon.com. Amazon.com's last private round had a $60 million valuation. And then they went public at several hundred million dollars. And obviously it's trillion dollar plus company today. But now you're seeing companies, whether it was Airbnb that went public at 60 billion plus, or Stripe that just did around at $50 billion, or Uber that went public at $50 billion. The market has just changed so dramatically from where it was back then. 
And so it just was very different in terms of the value equation for the companies. We're the ones who can really help them on that last mile from the private market to the public market. What is it going to take to be a really solid public company for a while over the last decade and our ability to do that and identify these companies? So I'd love to walk through that part of the investment process of how you do it. Once you turn on the spigot to being open for private market investing, where do these sourcing opportunities come from? That was probably the biggest question mark around if we can do this successfully longer term. It became very apparent to me that we were going to need a dedicated team in order to address the sourcing part of the equation, the top of the funnel per se. We started taking our team, which were all hybrid investors back in 2014. They all were doing public and privates. And we started to transform that team over the next eight years to a team of dedicated investors. So our first hire was Matt Withheiler, who made the Midas list and came to us from Flybridge. And then we've hired a series of investors subsequent to that. In doing that, we now, I think, have a really strong sourcing engine. And we're now looking at north of a thousand companies every year. And we're probably signing NDAs with about 150 to 200 that lead to, call it, 10 to 12 investments on average per year. And so I think we've done a really good job of building that funnel and being in a position that there's very few late stage deals that we're not getting a bite of the apple. How does the diligence process work to weed through such a large funnel of opportunities that you now have? There's always art and science to anything that you're doing in investing. And there's always a little science in terms of the dynamics that we're looking for companies that are north of $50 million of revenues. We're looking for companies that have other institutional investors in the cap table at the time of our investment. They need to have a strong management team. They need to have a strong board of directors, things like that. And so that eliminates a good amount of companies. But then a lot of it is you have to go down one, two, or three levels to really understand the dynamics of that company in the sectors that we're focused on, which is generally technology and consumer and healthcare and financial services. And it really comes down to a lot of conversations with a lot of companies. When I was on the public side, my superpower was that I do a really good job of taking the quantitative data and matching it with the qualitative data. We see that a lot on the private side. We have a lot of conversations with a lot of management teams before we ever get into a data room. And they say a lot of things over the course of that process. And then the confirmatory data is what really is going to enable us to really think about if we want to go forward or not go forward with that investment. And it's amazing how many times that the data doesn't agree with the conversations that we've had. And so that's a really good delineator for having us drop out of a particular company, but there's still a good amount, several hundred a year. We're going to drill down. We're going to have follow-up calls. We're going to go through the data. We're going to build our own models to really determine if this is an investment that we believe we can make really solid returns over our holding periods, which tend to be two, three, or four years from the time we invest to hopefully a liquidity event that generally has been an IPO. So some point in time in the future, we're going to want to sell. It's a lot of digging. It's a lot of blocking and tackling. There's really no way to replicate that without doing the hard work. That's a really, really big part of the process. And by the way, that's the part that I love the most. There's nothing I love more as an investor is sitting across the table and learning about ideas and understanding the dynamics of an entrepreneur and why they're doing what they're doing and how they've gotten to where they're going. It's the most fun part of the job for me. Being able to find somebody like Jeff Green at the trade desk, who was really under the radar in a category of ad tech that 
every company before him had effectively blown up. But understanding why the trade desk was different and buying into that dynamic and then seeing the success that he's had, that's what's so fun about this job and why I love doing it. As you're digging through that diligence on the company, how do you go about leveraging the massive research platform of everyone else at Wellington? That's a really, really important part of successful. And it comes back to why I joined Wellington 24 years ago. I always tell people when they ask, what's the one word you would use to describe Wellington? I always say that it's the collaboration. And I say, if you need a second word, the second word is collegial. I joined on a Monday. I remember literally on Tuesday sitting in my office thinking, I think this is going to work out. The vibe just felt so good. And the discord and the dialogue and the conversations about investments, which is such a great level that I just knew this was the right place for me. And that exists today because we can tap into the public side. And being able to talk with a Brian Barbetta who's covered the internet and social media stocks for the last decade and take that know-how, what he's learned from covering Meta and Twitter and many, many others, and then apply that to companies that we're looking at on the private side with that dedication and that level of detail is just really, really exciting. The entrepreneurs love it because number one, they get somebody who can walk the walk and talk the talk with them. We've looked at these logistic companies and we'll bring our logistics act, Bill Grodnick, to the table and he'll start talking logistics, which is a totally different language. You can just see the entrepreneur's eyes lighting up because they probably haven't spoken to anybody who's a logistics expert and understands the UPSs and the FedExs and the CH Robinsons of the world. And being able to sit across the table from them is just a really big advantage. And for me, it's a big advantage in making decisions because I know that I'm tapping into somebody who really understands the space. And when you get into companies like FinTech and in healthcare where they're highly regulatory environments and being able to have people like Jen Nettesheim, who's covered financial services for 20 plus years, or Ann Gallo, who's covered healthcare for 30 plus years and understands the framework of, of how Medicaid and Medicare works is such a big advantage for us when we're looking at these companies that are now upstarts and are trying to figure out the way forward. So I think it's one, gives us an advantage in making decisions on the deals we want to do, but also gives the entrepreneurs an ability to tap into our expertise on an ongoing basis subsequent to those decisions. What have you learned about how your decision process differs investing in private companies than your prior experience on the public side? On the public side, my philosophy and process was one where I was trying to identify companies that had accelerating growth and improving operating margins that was going to lead to better than expected growth. So a lot of it was really trying to figure out where there were companies that were being underestimated by the consensus. When you're on the private side, you lose all that. There's no consensus. So you're really trying to find companies that are going to be able to grow over time. It was really much more about identifying, understanding the fundamentals and the sustainability of those fundamentals versus the street was predicting 20% growth next year, but you thought it was going to be 40% growth. And you knew that was going to be the biggest driver of the stock price. So that was probably the biggest difference. And I think that has led us to be very eclectic in terms of the kind of companies that we've invested in, because sometimes there's companies that are not necessarily made as much for the private market because they have a very specific way of looking at things. But we understand are going to work really well on the public side. So you take an example like DraftKings, which was private for a number of years, 
But there came a point, I remember saying to Jason Robbins that I think we've tapped into all we can tap into on the private side. And I think this is going to be a really interesting company on the public side. We have an incredibly large industry of Las Vegas casinos and Macau casinos, the betting companies in the UK. And so this was going to tap into that market and we need that capital. And that's how we ended up going public when we did. And that turned out to be a really good decision for the company. All of that's just been a really important dynamic of the holistic view of the way that we think about these markets. How does what you learned about portfolio construction and risk management in a public portfolio inform how you think about how you put your portfolio together in the private markets? It's an important part of what we do, and it's an important differentiator of what we do in terms of thinking about portfolio construction, because I don't think that that's really a phrase that a lot of people think about on the private side. But obviously, when I was a public mutual fund manager, it was really, really important because we were managing to benchmarks and investors cared about how you looked relative to those benchmarks. And so I always had a view of where I wanted to be and how overweight or underweight any one of the sectors. I generally have in my head a purview of how large I'd want any one of the sectors to be because I always believe that diversification is a strength, not a weakness, because you just don't know. Obviously, two years ago, everybody was super bullish on crypto. Well, crypto's come back a little bit, but that's not worked out quite as well. And obviously, everybody was super bullish on software, and software got to unsustainable levels in 2021. And so our ability to build a portfolio that's more diversified, say maybe 30 to 40% in technology and 20 to 30% in consumer and 20 to 30% in healthcare, as well as financial services, has served us really well. I always like to use the Wayne Gretzky line, think about where the puck is going versus where it is. And in doing that, we put ourselves in a position that when we look at 2020, 21 vintage, which is a very perilous vintage now, given what happened to a lot of the sectors during that period of time, I look at that portfolio and I think we have a very diversified portfolio. We actually leaned away from software and into consumer and into healthcare and financial services. And I feel much better than if we just played what was working at that moment in time. And so being mindful that diversification could be your friend, I think has been really helpful and has been a really strong attribute of what I was able to bring from the public side and apply to the private side. So one of those changes in the environment has certainly been this entire late stage private growth investing, big, big change from two or three years ago. And I'd love to get your sense of how you lay out what the investment opportunity is today in what's become a very out of favor area. Yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely somewhat out of favor today. Two years ago, it could not have been more in favor. It was amazing how frenetic the market was. And going back to pattern recognition, the only time in my career it ever looked anything like this was the tech bubble. And it wasn't exactly the tech bubble. These, these bubbles always rhyme from time frame to time frame, but it was a generation ago. And I always have to remind myself that there weren't a lot of people that were investing in 2000 that were investing in 2021. I was one of them. That just means I'm a little older than everybody else. And so for me, it just became super reminiscent of what was happening then. And I knew it was going to end. I just didn't know how and why. But you wanted to get ahead of that. And you knew at the other side of it, I lived through this back in 2002 to 2008. 
there were going to be a lot of opportunities. There might be different than the opportunities that you were investing in in 2000 or 1999. And similarly, it could be very different now than it was then. It's going to feel harder. In reality, it's actually going to be easier because you're now going to be able to find companies that you can underwrite to really strong returns. And that's what we're seeing today. The funny thing is that just as everything ended in that 21-22 period, AI shows up. And yes, people have been talking about AI for the last decade, but there hasn't really been the killer app. It's just been a lot of stuff around the edges. And now it looks like in terms of what OpenAI is doing with ChatGBT, and now we have borrowed from Google, and there'll be many other versions, is we're starting to see those applications developing. And so now it's going to be a much different game. But to your question, today feels much more of a target-rich environment for us. Number one, we're seeing a lot less competition. There were a lot of people who were involved in 2021 that are not deploying at quite the rate that they were back then. A lot of our competitors are either not deploying or deploying at a much lower rate. So that's a really great development. Secondly, as an adjunct to that, the prices are massively better. We were seeing software deals getting done at 40, 60, 80 times forward sales, which if you reverse engineer that, 40 times sales is effectively well north of 100 times normalized earnings, which are usually five or six or seven years away. But today, what you've seen, let's take the software sector, you went from overall an industry that for 20 years sold for five to 10 times sales, it went to 20 times sales at the peak in November of 21, and the money-losing companies were averaging 30 times sales on the public side. On the private side, a company like Snowflake, which was selling for like 40, 50 times sales, everybody thought they were Snowflake. Everybody wanted a Snowflake valuation. What you saw since November 21 to now is you've now retraced that entire move. And now the average software company is selling for six times sales, which is at the lower end of the range. And so now you're at a point that you can, again, underwrite to much better valuations at a point that there's less competition, we're fortunate we have capital to deploy. And so we're seeing it a lot more. Now, the issue is a lot of the companies are trying to negotiate the fact that the market and the backdrop hasn't changed. And so since a lot of companies raised a lot of capital back in 2021, they've been able to sit on the sidelines for a little bit longer than normal. But combination of those companies now starting to need more capital, the Series B companies making their way into the late stage space, and companies that thought they might go public that no, that's not going to happen quite as quickly. We're starting to see a pickup in the amount of volume for deals in the late stage space. is in a backdrop that valuations are better and competition's a lot less. So as this is settled out and you're looking in the market today, where have we shaken out in terms of deal volume compared to a more normalized environment? Say you go back four or five years. We're massively below where we were at the peak, but I'd say we're probably modestly below where we were four or five years ago. We're getting back to the old normal. We're probably a little bit, but not massively below that. If anything, the market's becoming more and more global. The number of deals that we're seeing in Europe, Asia Pacific, Latin America, that there's been a little bit of a pickup on a relative basis because what's happened is a lot of the models that have worked, particularly in the US, have gotten exported to many other places. 
around the world. And a lot of those companies that were early stage companies two, three, four years ago are now making their way to the later stage space. The other thing that I would point out is that despite everything that's happened, particularly on a valuation basis, the level of innovation has not dissipated. It's still really, really strong. As I was alluding to earlier, the whole AI space is maybe the mother of all opportunities. This could be bigger than anything that I have seen in my career. You look at the number of people that have downloaded or started using ChatGBT and these other systems, it's some of the fastest ramp-up rates that we've ever seen on any technology in our lifetime. And the use cases are piling up really, really fast. And so the level of innovation, whether it's in technology or in consumer and healthcare and in financial services, that has not really changed. That to me is what's really exciting about the next stage and the opportunities that we're going to see. Even the tech bubble right back in 2000, it wasn't like the internet was a fake out. The internet actually did happen. I believe it's been a pretty successful thing. It just needed some better catalysts. We needed higher speed internet volumes. We needed the iPhone to be invented. So it took some additional development, but it wasn't a fake out from that perspective. It was just a little bubble-ish. And similarly, what we're seeing, whether it's in software and these other sectors, these are real companies and they're still growing and there's more and more opportunities out there. As we really look over the next 10 years, I am as excited today as I was back in 2011, which was really the beginning of that 10-year cycle that led to the bubble in 2021. When you have this combination of less supply of capital in the late stage and more and more opportunities, how are you sifting through all of it and deciding where you're going to make your investments? I don't think anything has really changed. It's less frenetic than it was in 2021, but it's not that different than it was back in, say, 2016, 17, and 18. And so that having been working at such a fast speed, that working at this more normalized speed feels slow to us, but we have this ability to dig down and we have more time on every deal. It's amazing the number of deals that we had to pass on in 2021 because we'd get into the data room and the company would say like, hey, listen, we want term sheets by Thursday. And it was Monday. Well, we don't work that way. And so we're just going to have to miss that deal. That is no longer the case. It's now a case of basically you have almost all the time that you want. You could do things in the way that you want to do them without that level of pressure. So we're able to go at a really reasonable pace and do the level of work that we want to do. I love that. And it's very advantageous for the way that we like to work. And as we were talking about being able to bring our global industry analysts from the public side to the table on the deals that we're doing. If there's anything that I've learned in my career is you can't adjust your philosophy and process for what's happening at that moment in time. And I think because we were so consistent prior to 2021 and today that we really haven't changed a whole lot because we've been very, very consistent. And so the consistency has been a hallmark of the way that we run this strategy. As you turned from doing deals to your support of the companies. How's that changed given the changes in the market environment? It's changed a lot in terms of what we've been talking about because in 2020, 21, everybody was sitting around the table wanting every one of their companies to grow as fast as they could. That was the mantra, right? You were going to get rewarded for growing really, really fast and nobody cared about your burn rates. 
obviously that is no longer the case. Number one, capital is not plentiful. And number two, capital is no longer free. So the biggest conversation we've been having around the table is really telling our companies, we now understand the roadmap to the future. You need to have a balance between top line growth and profitability, which is basically the way the world works, maybe 95% of the time, And so we've been telling our companies is you need to be showing that balance. You need to show that every incremental dollar that comes to the top line is starting to show some incremental profitability to the bottom line. And that's what you're going to get rewarded for is your ability to do that. So that's the biggest part of our conversation right now. They're getting that message. And of course, that helps us out in making incremental investments because we understand the playbook going forward that you need to have this balance. And so that's really helpful in coloring the types of companies that we want to look at. I'm curious, over these last two, three years, you mentioned the investment process, wanting it to be consistent in the types of companies you're looking at, but then also on the support, the market environment changing from growth to cash flow, as we know. What was that like for you, having lived through the last bubble and you're saying you kind of knew it was going to end. You didn't know how, you didn't know when, but when you're talking to companies a couple of years ago, there's a certain vibe and then that vibe changes. And there's really two sides to that question because there's the buy side of that question and the sell side of that question. We were seeing a tremendous amount of IPOs in the second half of 2020 into the first half of 21. In my portfolio, we had 15 liquidity events in about a seven month period. So we had the biggest portfolio I had had since I'd been a public portfolio manager. At one point, like a dozen companies that were in our portfolios that were now public, that were in our private portfolios. So job one was really making sure that we got the sell side right. Because there's anything I learned from that bubble was not to drink the Kool-Aid. I had my face ripped off during the tech bubble. I was a young portfolio manager. I'd never been through a bubble before. I was a growth manager and I was doing what I thought a growth manager should do. And I stayed a little too long. I would have liked to have been leaning the other direction before we hit the peak. So this time I was very intent and making sure I didn't ride these off the cliff. And so we were re-underwriting everything to normalize multiples. So we were selling everything. We ended up selling in 21, close to 90% of everything that came up. And that included selling some secondary stock in companies that weren't even public. And that's all from my experience from the tech bubble. The other side was the fact that we had capital to deploy. Our clients gave us capital because they want us to deploy it. And I always think about Don Valentine, the legendary investor from Sequoia, used to say in his meetings that our clients gave us money so that we would say yes, not say no to every company. And so we were trying to balance that also. I think we did a reasonably good job of balancing the fact that we were in a very frenetic environment with very high valuations by dialing down the companies that were burning a lot and staying away from those. We only did one software investment in 2021, invested in these other areas of the market that we're involved with. But I also remember when we had Gary Cohn from Goldman Sachs came in to see us right after the great financial crisis. We asked him, we said, Gary, what did you learn from the great financial crisis? And he said, The last of everything we did was horrible. The last investment, the last bet that we made, we made mistakes because we were still in the game and we got out faster than others. And I look back at that 21 portfolio, I give myself a reasonably good grade in terms of how we handled the things that we bought. But there's no doubt a couple of things that I look at today, I'm like, we paid a little too high a multiple for that. Now, hopefully they'll grow into that and maybe it takes a little bit longer for us to get the gains we're looking for. But 
it was a very hard environment. The number of times that we said no and sat in our weekly meeting and we're discussing valuation was almost nauseating because as a growth investor, I don't like to talk about valuation until the very end. I like to focus on fundamentals. And then we solve for valuation on the back end. That's how I always did it on the public side, in the private side, where you're setting what you think the price should be. You want that to be in the back end. But we were literally getting bid away 100% more than we were willing to pay. Some cases, even more than that, by the nature of that, passing on a lot. But even we probably expanded a little bit. We would say like, okay, maybe it shouldn't be 10 times forward sales. We're going to go to 12 or 13 or 14. Fortunately, we didn't go to 40 and 50 and 60 times. But I think that that's always the really, really hard decisions that you're making. It's hard to just sit on the sidelines and do nothing. And so we tried to strike that balance between not doing anything that was obscene versus not doing anything at all. But as I noted, there are definitely a couple of companies you look back and say, all right, if we're doing that deal today, we could have paid a much better valuation than we did then. Curious today with almost the flip side of the IPO market from two years ago, very little action happening on the exit. How are you thinking about that flow of capital through your portfolio to the exit strategy? The age-old question of what happens if the IPO market never reopens again. So we've done a lot of work on thinking about that and reviewing what's happened with the IPO market. And the short answer I always give to clients or prospects that ask that question is that on the list of things that I worry about, The reason for that is that ultimately it's going to open. When I look back over 40 years of data, the market generally doesn't close for more than a year. And when it does close for more than a year, maybe it closes for two or so years. And I look at where we are today, we're now in year two of this. And we're now seeing an improvement in the public markets. I obviously don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know if it's going to sustain or not, but definitely it feels like we're through the worst of it. So I think that we're seeing this improving environment And ultimately, when the public markets improve, the IPO markets improve. And the reason for that is I go back to my time as a public portfolio manager. When the markets are bad, nobody wants to do an IPO because you got 50 fires in your portfolio. The last thing you want to do is sit across the table from a company you don't know with a management team you've never met and even think about making an investment in this company unless it's the greatest company ever. So it's really, really hard to go public. But Once you get out of that, and once you start to feel better about the performance of your portfolio, you've gotten rid of some of these fires, and you redeployed, you ultimately know that the way you differentiate yourself is finding new companies that others are not as familiar with. And so you're going to make your way into the IPO market. And so ultimately, this is why the IPO market will come back. But I always look at our companies and Actually, some of our better returns have been in companies that have taken longer to go public. So my view is that as long as our companies are compounding at 30, 40, 50%, if it takes a year or two years or even three years, those companies are going to be two, three times larger. And unless valuations have just gone through the floor, we're probably going to be better off than we would have been if the company went public today. And so as long as our companies are executing I feel that time is our friend. And if there's anything that I've learned about the private markets is that patience is a really, really good virtue relative to the public markets where you're being engaged on your quarterly performance. We have the luxury of time to work things out. I look at a company like 
DraftKings, which is probably one of the higher drama stocks that we've had in our portfolio, where literally every attorney general was investigating legality, see, of daily fantasy sports. And then ultimately, the law around sports betting was taken out by the Supreme Court. And now the company is one of the premier companies in the sports betting market. If I was on the public side, I probably would have sold that at a really bad time. And we held that company from late 2014, early 2015 through 2020. And so it was a six-year holding period, but it worked out incredibly well. And that, to me, the advantage of the time that you have on the private side that sometimes you feel you don't have when you're investing companies on the public side. I'd love to hear a recent favorite example of an investment you made that is somewhat emblematic of this newer normal environment that you might not have been able to make in the same way a couple of years ago? A good example of that is the company SeatGeek. Many people probably have used their site. So they're a secondary as well as primary also on the ticketing side for concerts, for sports, and all events. And so one, the reason we got to invest in this company was because they announced they were going to go public through a SPAC. And that SPAC was announced, I'm guessing it probably was sometime in that 21 period. And then ultimately, as the SPAC market fell apart, they decided that it's probably better to stay private than go public. And probably a great decision because we all know there's pretty much 80% of the SPAC market is trading under $5 today. But they still need a capital. The company's still growing at a very high rate. They just won the ability to do secondary ticketing for Major League Baseball, and they're winning more and more primary deals, and that requires capital. And so we'd known the company for a long period of time. We'd known them probably for five years. And so when they decided to raise capital, they reached out to us to look at that deal. We revisited it. And previously, the only reason we didn't invest in it is we just couldn't find the right valuation, that we liked the asset a lot. We like what they were doing. They're picking up share relative to all the other players in the secondary market, but we just couldn't come to the right price. But now we looked at it about a year ago at this point, and the price was really reasonable in terms of what we thought the company was worth and what we believed it would be worth several years out. It was a moment where there wasn't a lot of other capital around the table, but we really loved the property. And now we were able to match the fundamentals with the valuation And we were able to write a very large check into that company without a lot of issues around allocation. And so far, they've executed super well. They've met or beaten expectations. They're moving closer and closer to profitability. And the fundamentals are as good, if not better, than they've been over the time that we've been watching them. That's a great example of a company that would actually have been public today if it wasn't for the fact that the public market shut down and obviously the SPAC market has really shut down. And so that gave us a great shot to invest in a late stage company that has hundreds of millions of dollars of revenues and is on a really concrete path to the public markets. What concerns you about your portfolio and new investments going forward? When I look at all of the mistakes that we've made in the last eight, nine years and all of the successes that we've had in that same period of time, 95% of the time, if not more, it's idiosyncratic, is did we get the fundamentals right on the companies that we invested in? Did we value the companies appropriately for where they were and where they were going? And that's what it's mostly come down to because our companies on average growing 50% or more. And so whether we're in a 3% GDP economy or a 1% GDP economy or inflation's 6% or 2%, it's not going to be the gating factor on whether we do well or do not. We're not really investing in cyclical companies. They're all secular. They're taking share 
They're very large TAMs. And so it's going to come down to execution. When we've been wrong, the execution has been poor. When we've been right, the execution has been strong. And so the big stuff doesn't generally keep me up at night. It really comes down to the fundamentals of each one of the companies in our portfolio. And that's what we worry about. And that's what we talk about 90% plus is what's going on with these companies and how are they doing and what can we do to help them do better? And if they're doing poorly, why? And the why is usually because the company is not doing a great job. Their sales force is not selling well or their R&D is not bringing out innovative products. But it's really rarely because of something that we missed on a macro environment. It really comes down to just getting the fundamentals right across the portfolio. Outside of generative AI as a huge potential opportunity, what are you most excited about where you're seeing the fundamentals play through? So if you take it sector by sector, if you look at the consumer sector, there's still a number of really interesting direct-to-consumer slash omni-channel models that are developing. And I always look at the consumer that somebody's gaining share and somebody's losing share every day of the week. And there's still these models that we're seeing really ramp up super fast and resonating with their customers and addressing parts of the market that there's either very established companies that lost their way or haven't really moved with their customer base. And so we still see a lot there. We still see a lot in terms of marketplaces being able to really drive supply and demand. And so we still like those areas of the consumer space. And it's an area that we've been very active in and seeing some good opportunities. SeatGeek is a perfect example of that. That's basically a marketplace. You go to the healthcare area, there's always exciting med tech companies. There's still a lot of differentiation and exciting opportunities happening in the med tech space and also in the services space. What we're seeing is there's a lot of therapeutic areas where the managed care companies cannot get on top of the cost structure. And there's these companies that are able to optimize for various parts of the cost structure. So for instance, we own a company called Somatis. That company is involved in kidney disease management. So that's all they do is optimizing kidney disease management, which is one of the highest cost areas for managed care companies. And so if they can do it better and reduce the cost to the managed care companies, that's worth a lot of money to them. And there's a lot of those types of categories that we still see really strong opportunities. And so that's some of the areas of healthcare in consumer that we love. The fintech area, there's still opportunities. There's still across the globe, a tremendously high number of people who are either unbanked or underbanked or better way to deliver financial services. And so we still see a lot of opportunities there. We've made several investments, ironically, I guess, in the buy now, pay later space, originally invested in a firm. Then we invested in a company called Payd. We're now invested in Klarner. And we think that that's a great way to acquire customers for brands. It was probably one of the single best drivers for Peloton back in the day when they went to buy now, pay later and offering another option for their consumers. It seems to me that this millennial and Gen Z consumer doesn't want to have a tremendous amount of credit card debt. So they like this shorter term aspect of that. And so that's been an area that we've been involved in. And then in tech, you look at software. We love software. We didn't invest in a lot of it back in 21 because it was super expensive, but software as a service is still one of the best business models that you could think of in any environment. And so we're now starting to see a lot of those companies coming back to market across the board. And there's still a lot of areas that workloads can be moved into more of a SaaS-like environment. And then as you alluded to, the biggest opportunity and the biggest threat is going to be AI. 
And I think everyone in our companies or new companies we're looking at, is AI going to be disruptive to them or are they going to be the disruptor? Because that question is going to be super, super important over the next five to 10 years. Well, Michael, I want to make sure you get some time to ask you a few closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Definitely fitness. I'm very, very focused on continuing to hack my way to a younger chronological age, which I'll never be able to do, but I'm very focused on weight training and cardio, fitness. I was thinking about this the other night. I probably work out 350 out of 365 days a year. I just came back from a business trip that was 22 days long and took me to five countries and I worked out 21 of the 22 days. And so hopefully I was successful with the clients, but I was very successful in not getting out of shape. And so that's the first one. And then the second thing is travel. I love to travel, even business travel. I just went on a trip that took me to Paris, Berlin, London, Singapore, Hong Kong. And as much as it sounds like a grind, I actually had a good time. Obviously, I do a lot of leisure travel too with my wife, Pam. But I just love meeting people. I love meeting other cultures. I love walking the streets and walking through alleys and really embedding ourselves in the culture and trying out the food and doing that on a global basis. It's just, it's so much fun to just meet new people along the way. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? One of my pet peeves on the investment side is being inflexible. I remember the old Keynes line, When the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And I'm a big proponent of that. I probably was a little too flexible at times, but a CEO once said to me, having a flexible mind is a sign of strength, not weakness. And I always believed in that. As we're getting the facts, we need to make different decisions. Whenever we had an investment meeting when we were on the public side, if it was a really bad meeting, I would come out, if it was a company we owned, they say, well, how do we think about the meeting? And everyone would be like, oh, that was a horrible meeting. I said, so what are we going to do? Are we going to sell? Because... If we didn't own the stock, we wouldn't buy it. So if we own the stock and we just had a really bad meeting, shouldn't we be selling? And so I always believe that maintaining your flexibility was really, really important because the facts are going to change all the time and you should be somewhat reflective of that. The other pet peeve I have, I always think this is kind of a funny one, is that I don't like when people remind me of my mistakes. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't own my mistakes because I own them. I never try to obfuscate. I'm never defensive about that. But I have felt that my strength as investor is I have short-term memory loss. I can make a mistake and I could take away, what did I learn from it? Which is super important. It's a big proponent of embracing failure and understanding it and embedding it in what I'm doing on a go-forward basis. But I don't like to be reminded of it because once I forget it, I've moved on. And so we don't need to remind me that I made a big mistake because I've owned it, I've absorbed it, and now I've moved on. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So the first one I would say would be John Gooch. John Gooch, who's now 82 years old. And I always tell him that on a age-adjusted basis, he's the most aggressive investor in the country. Is he still you know, emailing me all the time? He's like, hey, what do you think about Snowflake? What do you think about MongoDB? And he's like, amazing. He hired me at Wellington in 1999. He was the guy who took a chance on me coming from a hedge fund, but he saw something in me and he hired me 24 plus years ago. And not only was he an amazing boss and an amazing mentor, but he is also a really great investor. And I've learned a lot from him on all aspects. He now splits his time between Florida and Maine and will basically seek him out and see him in all those places just to continue to get his pearls of wisdom. And then the second person is going to definitely be my wife, Pam. I don't think 
that uh, whatever level of success I had in this business would be possible without her. She's just been that rock, the person that absorbs all of my stress over the years. And also, I would say, is one of the best consumer discretionary investors that I know. She does nothing on the investment side, but her gut in terms of understanding what's going to work and not work has always been great for me over the years. And she is always the person to remind me when things are not going well, that I need to go with my gut. And that's been probably one of the best investment lessons for me is that you could have all of these numbers and you could always make things work and you could model everything. But at some point, you got to use your gut in terms of making good investment decisions. And she always is the one to remind me, go with your gut and that will push you in the right direction. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Two things. So for my father was really just quietly working hard. You know, my dad owned the liquor store when we were growing up. He worked six days a week and never complained. He just did the job. And I think that was the same lesson that I tried to instill on my kids. And they're both super, super hard workers. You can't guarantee a lot in life, but if you can get that done, it's super important. And then with my mom, who passed away a year ago, I don't think I ever really exceeded her expectations. I always felt like I had to do a little bit more. It was nothing ever that she was over the moon excited about. So as much as I would like a little bit more accolades, I think that was just super important. My wife keeps me super grounded. My mom kept me super grounded. Maintaining that humility is a great, great reminder. And so I think those would be the two key lessons for my parents. Uh, Michael, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I always love when you ask that question, because on the one hand, I do believe that all of these life lessons you needed to learn in order to achieve success. When I talk to younger people, I always say to them, embrace failure. You're going to have failure. You're not going to get everything right, but you need to embrace it. And so you need to make all of those mistakes. Within the context of that, there's probably things that it would have been nice to know a little bit earlier that might have made things a little bit easier. The one thing that I remember that was probably from 15 years ago, we had Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, came in to talk to us. And the thing that he said that he learned when he was old that he wished he knew sooner, which I totally agree with, is that eliminate drama in your life as quickly as possible, whether it's people or events or other things. That's the stuff that brings you down and makes it harder for you to be successful. And so I think that there are times where I and probably everybody endure a little bit more drama in their life than they really need. I've tried to do a better job of eliminating it, whether it's relationships that are just not as good for me as I think they should be or other things in my life in order to make things easier. Because I think when you have more focus, you can have more success. And when you have less headwinds, more tailwinds, that's great. And so I love that advice. And so I'd say if I had to pick something that I wish I knew about 30 years ago, that would be at the top of my list. Michael, thanks so much for sharing your perspectives. I had this great update on the late stage private markets. Awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.